Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 26, September 13th through September 19th, 1861. Before we get started, just a few brief announcements. The Patreon episode involving Sam Watkins and the memoir review for Company H that is up on the Patreon feed So if you are interested, please make sure to check that out. Company H, if you are not aware, it is spelled A-Y-T-C-H, is one of the better-known memoirs of the Civil War. So one of these, uh, usually in the list, of must-read Civil War memoirs. So it does very much hold up to that title so if you're interested in hearing more about company h once again that is on the patreon feed last week we talked about carnifex ferry and the union pushing confederate forces back from western virginia carnifex is one of those battles that is sneaky important as the war plays out Today, we will check back in on the Confederate forces and what is going on there. But first, let's see about Kentucky and pick up where we left off. It will flow a bit better if we juggle the timeline and look toward the end of the first week, which I will do unless there are any objections. I will now pause for objections. No objections? Good. Well... We are going to go ahead and proceed then. So when we last left off, Kentucky had declared for the Union. You will remember there were State Guard that were pro-Confederate and Home Guard that were pro-Union. Much like Maryland, Kentucky is another one of those states that has units on both sides, both Confederate and Union during the war. Additionally, Kentucky will have a very large amount of regiments of U.S. colored troops later in the war. In September of 1861, there were Union volunteers gathering outside of Lexington. The volunteers would be under the command of George Thomas, who we had introduced a couple of episodes back. If you remember, though, there was a sort of strategic placing of pieces on the board by both sides, especially the Confederates, who were ready to jump in and claim the state for the South. One such general ready to pounce was Felix Zollicoffer. Zollicoffer was from Tennessee, but descended from Swiss immigrants who had fought in the Revolutionary War. Felix would serve in the militia during the Second Seminole War, but return to Tennessee to serve a brief stint in Congress. He was a Whig in terms of political affiliation, 
actually supporting Winfield Scott in his unsuccessful bid for presidency. During the election of 1860, Zollicoffer would support John Bell and his Constitutional Union Party. At the outbreak of the war, he would be named a general by Isham G. Harris, but had limited combat experience during his time in the militia. Still, he commanded over 5,000 men who would move on central Kentucky on September 14, 1861. At a place called Barbersville, on the 19th, his men would skirmish with a camp of Union volunteers, most of whom had already withdrawn to Lexington. 300 or so remained in the advance camp near Barbersville. Zollicoffer would send 800 of his men under the command of Joel Battle forward to meet the enemy. Battle was also a Whig and had served in the militia with Felix during the Seminole War. Retreating quickly, the Union would exchange fire with the larger forces of Confederates. In a similar kind of situation as some of our smaller engagements in Missouri, the Confederate numbers were too much for the smaller Union home guards. The camp and buildings were captured by the rebels, while the Union forces would disable a bridge to make good on their flight. Casualties were lighter, around two with 13 captured for the north and seven killed for the southerners. The battle was dubbed an important early victory in Kentucky, if nothing else, for propaganda purposes. We have already talked about how there are certain battles which are deemed more important in terms of the war effort, especially early on. Like, for instance, Big Bethel was seen as a very large engagement, important engagement, etc. So, especially with this situation early in the war, and it's a battleground state, there's going to be a lot more fanfare involved with that. So, the pro-Confederate press is obviously spinning this as a huge victory for the South, and that is to hopefully drum up some support from those in Kentucky who have not yet declared their allegiance. Zollicoffer's men would push back additional Home Guard forces in the area. As a response, Thomas would move men forward to London, Kentucky, and establish a fortified position called Camp Wildcat that was approximately 25 miles north of Barbersville. We will actually come back to Camp Wildcat here very shortly in a future episode, so stay tuned for that. Back once again to West Virginia now. So when we last left, Floyd and Wise were repulsed 
from retaking the breaking away areas of the state of Virginia. Jefferson Davis will send Robert E. Lee to try to restore order and win back some of the lost territory. This will be the first time that Lee will command troops in the field during the war, and it does not go according to plan. Joseph Reynolds had taken over command of the Cheat Mountain region, which is north and east of where we were talking about with the Gauley River and specifically Carnifex Ferry. The mountain is not too far from Snowshoe, which is now a popular ski and snowboard destination. Joseph Reynolds had attended West Point as a youth and would rise to command a division and corps in the Western Theater. He may be a little more known for his role during the war with the Sioux in the 1870s, being in command of the force that sees a setback at Powder River, resulting in the court-martial of Reynolds. In 1861, Reynolds has four regiments, three of which are with him at his camp known as Camp Elkwater. One of his regiments, the 14th Indiana, he sends to Cheat Mountain. Both positions are fortified, ready for a Confederate attack. Lee was with two brigades commanded by William Loring. Loring, whose nickname is Old Blizzards, is an interesting character. Old Blizzards is his nickname in case you were wondering, because the general was known to yell, give them blizzards to his men as encouragement during combat. Loring was originally from North Carolina and would travel the country and the globe. He would serve in the Mexican-American War, where his left arm was amputated. After the war, he would spend time in the West, as well as take a tour of Europe. Loring would organize the forces that had been under Garnett, who was killed at Cork's Ford, if you remember. Old Blizzards will not have luck under Jackson, though. The two did not get along, and Loring was sent out west, where he serves under Pemberton during the Vicksburg campaign. He would continue in various positions in the Western Feeder, making it all the way to the surrender at Bennett's place in 1865. After the war, he will offer his services as a general in Egypt and spend three years writing a book on his experience afterwards. That's something else that I think I want to do a supplementary episode on, perhaps maybe a subject for a down day, but... There are several generals who, after the war, decide they're not done being generals and go abroad to offer their services. Loring, obviously, is one. There are several others, though, who go specifically to Egypt 
among other places. So it would be interesting to see where these individuals are ending up. So just be on the lookout for a supplemental about that. Lee would come up with a plan to take out Reynolds. A two-pronged attack would hit Camp Elkwater and Cheat Mountain at the same time. Fog and miscommunication by the Confederates hampered this plan. Keep in mind also that terrain plays a role in combat, this particular area in West Virginia being very mountainous. Despite the rebels heavily outnumbering the 14th Indiana, they were convinced a much larger force was dug into Cheat Mountain. Reynolds at Camp Elkwater would repulse any Confederate attacks against them. He even sent reinforcements to Kimball and the 14th Indiana, but they were not necessary. 300 men faced one brigade of Confederates, but successfully fought them off. Lee would eventually realize that the attacks were no good and withdraw his men. We actually have, speaking of Sam Watkins and Company H, we do have an account in his memoir that I did not mention in the Patreon, specifically because I wanted to mention it in the regular feed here. He paints a very confused version of the battle. He's marching and all of a sudden they're getting hit with fire randomly. So it sort of paints this picture of you don't know how many men you're facing at Cheat Mountain, you know, probably just the one regiment of the 14th Indiana, but because of the terrain, the wooded area, it seemed like a much greater force to him. So he doesn't have a very nice visual for that in his memoir in Company H. Casualty figures for the Confederates are vague. For the Union, their numbers were reported as 88. Confederates, we can estimate as around 120. Obviously, if they were attacking an entrenched enemy, we can expect greater numbers than the defenders. One higher profile casualty for the South was a Colonel John Washington, the great grandnephew of George Washington. Colonel Washington was scouting the Union right as a member of Lee's staff when he was killed. The strategic situation did not change following the battle. Union forces remained where they were, although Reynolds would scheme of an offensive to launch against the enemy. The Confederates withdrew to friendlier territory, having gained nothing but a bloody nose. After Cheat Mountain... Lee will attempt to organize his forces for a new offensive. Davis, though, will recall him back to Richmond in October, the first campaign ending in failure. Just want to insert a little more detail on the rocky beginning to the war for Lee, who is not displaying a good preview of the kind of command he will display over the Army of Northern Virginia later in the war. Now, keep in mind, 
a high-profile casualty like the great-grandnephew of George Washington, when that is reported to the public, especially in Virginia, because if you remember, George Washington is still pretty famous, still famous to this day, but in Virginia, he's considered to be a native son, the first president of the United States. So somebody associated with him, a family member, and when you're the commanding officer in the engagement where he perishes, unfortunately so, then you're going to be heaped with a lot of public pressure, probably more so than if you had simply just been defeated. So that is playing a little bit of a factor, at least early on, but still wanted to give a little bit more of an insight into Lee. If you remember, Lee was an engineer, and he would be dispatched to help in the creation of fortifications in North Carolina. We have discussed during the episode on Big Bethel that, especially early in the war and all throughout, Confederate soldiers would not take well to manual labor. We understand this from several soldier memoirs as well. They were very much put off by army life, especially having to dig, having to perform any sort of manual labor, having to march, the monotony of life, especially for southern soldiers who join up with this sort of uh, zeal and grand adventure mindset that's going to be hard for them to adjust to. Whether the work was seen as beneath them or it was a less than romantic aspect of soldiering as mentioned, there would be grumbling. Morale of these men would plummet and they would begin to refer to Lee as the king of spades because of his insistence that they dig and specifically they're digging earthworks, right? But this is bringing up a good subject. We have had several battles already where one side has been protected by digging in. This breaks the common misconception that all battles in the early war were fought in lines for sure. I would like to take a little bit of time today, though, to go over earthworks, especially the most common type during the war, so we have a better idea of what we are talking about moving forward. And I'm sure that the engineer Robert E. Lee would approve of such a subject, even though we're mentioning it hand in hand with one of his early defeats. We have discussed forts already on this podcast. In fact, we've mentioned that stone forts had become obsolete. Rifling and cannons has made projectiles more powerful and able to do real damage on those forts. So we need to turn away from stone or wood as materials for protection against modern armament. Let's go over some terms for fortifications that may be important for the future. Full disclosure, some of these terms are in French, so I apologize in advance for the pronunciation. 
field fortifications are known as temporary entrenchments or field works used to protect soldiers. Earthworks are fortifications made of, you guessed it, dirt. Usually, there would be a ditch dug in front of the earthwork to make things more difficult for an attacking enemy. Even during our first few battles in 1861, earthworks have played a major role. Last episode, we mentioned the Confederates constructing them at Carnifex Ferry. Breastworks were made of piled material, usually whatever was available. It would be piled chest high, as the name would imply. Fence rails, stone, sticks, all of these things could be used to construct a good breastwork. You know, so long as it was thick enough to, I guess, stop a bullet, right? It's probably the important part. It was said that this could be done in about five hours for a regiment. A slight breastwork was one that protected soldiers when kneeling. If these were to become more permanent, they would be covered with earth. Situations where these could be used would vary, but generally it was when a trench could not be dug. Barricades could also be used. You would use whatever was available, like a tree, a felled tree, just as sort of as an obstacle for an attacking enemy. We already talked about a ditch. There was usually a firing step that would be used by the defenders. This elevated area was called a banquette. The ditch might also contain frays or wooden stakes that would protrude from the scarp. The scarp was the slope of the ditch leading up to where the defenders could fire from. Before the ditch, there could be abatis. The making of abatis was simple. Felled trees could be stripped of leaves and then placed toward the attackers. Sometimes the branches would be sharpened to make even more of a deterrent for an assault. So you might be sitting here thinking, well, that doesn't sound too bad, but imagine just a tree and just branches are just sticking at you. You're probably not going to run headlong into that tree, you know, even if it's not going to, to kill you to run into these branches. Uh, it's probably going to hurt, right? And you're probably going to have to slow down to try to get through the branches. So that was the whole sort of point of having, having that. A more iconic defense tool was known as chevaux de frise. This would be sharpened stakes forming an X with a log running through them to connect. And do not fear, I will go ahead and put a picture of that on the website, so make sure to check that out. I don't want you to have a misconception with my probably poor description here, um, but uh, never fear, they'll be they'll be on the website. Chevaux de Frise was possibly invented in the 1500s in the Netherlands. 
so it has been around for quite some time. It could be placed in a manner like abatis, or could also be placed at the bottom of a ditch. Normally, in front of an earthwork, the area would be cleared of trees and cover in order to provide a good field of fire for the defenders. The most common type of earthwork during the American Civil War is the rifle trench. These would differ from the rifle pit, also known during the war as a gopher hole. I think this would be more equivalent to the foxhole that we often picture when talking about World War II. These would normally be in an advanced position and house one or two men. Rifle pits, picket lines, if you remember, we talked about pickets not long ago. These would classify under advanced works. The rifle trench would be used as a temporary fortification, or it could also be used to protect areas between larger works. It contained a headlog that was used to protect the men in the trench. The log would be elevated using small pickets so that a firearm could be used, but as the name implies, the head of the defender would be saved from incoming enemy fire. There would also be additional supports so that the log would not roll back on the defenders in the case of artillery fire. The rifle trench would often have a banquette, much like your larger works that we've talked about. Briefly, I would also like to go over the parts of an actual fort, be it made of stone or earth. These would be more permanent structures than your temporary works. Redans and lunettes were used during the Civil War. Both formed a salient angle containing two sides, a lunette containing two parallel flanks. Both would not be fully enclosed, open in the rear. A redoubt was fully enclosed, looking like a mini fort, as part of a larger chain of fortifications. Bomb proofs were exactly how they sound. They would be covered and protected from enemy artillery fire. Enough wood and earth to prevent an enemy shell of getting through would be employed. The powder magazine containing the ammunition for the fort would be a bomb proof, for example. A casemate could be used as well, sitting in a wall of a fort to protect an artillery piece or a powder magazine. Forts often contained blockhouses. These would often be made of wood and contain loopholes that could be used to fire on attackers. These would usually have a roof and sometimes be two stories so that they had a better angle to shoot at enemies. A blockhouse might look like a structure made of Lincoln logs. 
This is funny, considering the childhood toy was named after what Abraham Lincoln's log cabin would have looked like, and fun fact, was actually invented by the son of Frank Lloyd Wright. Anyway, I will go ahead and post a picture of a blockhouse to the website, and you can tell me if that's accurate. In fact, I'll probably be posting a lot of pictures of these things so that you have a better idea of what I'm talking about. Sounds good in my brain, but when I put it on paper and I actually say it out loud, I think maybe it could be a little bit confusing. So check out the website for those pictures. Considering we went on a little Lincoln Log tangent, I suppose that's enough about fortifications for today. To be clear, there are a lot more terms I could have gone over. This is really just a snapshot. Trust me, those French like naming things and forcing you to use their words for them. I should know because I fence. Today, though, we talked about early action in Kentucky, as well as Lee's first battle and subsequently his first setback at Sheet Mountain. We also got that introduction of forts and their terms. Next week, we will head even further out west to find out what's been going on in New Mexico. You heard me correctly when I said that, New Mexico. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, and Venmo information. Once again, there is a Patreon episode up, Company H, the review that is posted, so please make sure to check that out. Support for the general upkeep of the show, would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.